Yeah, so uh, we are here with another episode of the Black Swan Experience. I'm your host, Jonathan. Uh, and today we have uh, Royley o- Riley Oikel, a uh, real estate investor coming out of uh, Southern Ontario. Um, thanks, thanks, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, no pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, you were just talking about the, uh, the students that, uh, that you've been helping out. Uh, 18, 19 years old, which I thought was pretty interesting. Can you kind of talk more about that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, ultimately, um, I think it kind of really boils down to right now, it doesn't matter what your age is. Of course, you need to be 18 to technically like have your name on the title of a property. Yeah. But um, yeah, like I, I've taken taken a lot of enjoyment right now on helping people that are kind of between the ages of 18 to call it like 30. Uh, people that, you know, they're, they're starting off they want to buy their first investment property. And I find the first one's like 10 times more difficult than the second. You can, if you can go out and buy that first property, um, you're going to feel unleashed when you go to the, buy the second one. And, you know, that was my experience anyway, when I bought my first one, I was 20, 22 or so. Um, and I just felt unleashed right after I was like, Oh, well, obviously I'm going to buy five more properties this year. Cause like that, you know um, but, but you have to learn a lot to be able to go and buy that first one. There's many, many obstacles and hurdles. Um, and, and I actually call them landmines because you can, you can really, if you hit one, um, go bankrupt quite easily between you know, where you are right now at zero and where you want to go being one property. So as long as you know where those are and how to avoid them, then it's actually quite simple. It's not really difficult. Um, and that's what I'm uh, doing right now to help people is, is get them from zero to one. Well, and what was that, that, that learning process that you talk about? Like, you know, getting to that first property, what, what did that learning process look like for you? Yeah. Hindsight's 2020. Looking back, I'm like, damn, I I definitely could have been smarter about my learning process. And, uh, and that's kind of, again, what's driven me now to help other people um, shorten that learning process and and condense it into even three to four months. Um, But for me, I started off just slowly consuming content through reading books, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, and I was learning a good amount of information, but it was all, all over the place. I was learning about 10 different strategies in 15 different markets, and none of it was focused. Um, and I always think about when I, when I think about my, my learning process back then, um, it, it kind of reminds me of like the time I, I saw like an interviewer ask Warren Buffett and Bill Gates to write on a piece of paper, you know, both individually, uh, in one word, what led to their success. And they wrote the word focus. They both wrote the exact same word. And, and, you know, I was totally unfocused. I was very scatter-minded, uh, you know, shiny objects were everywhere and I was chasing them. And so it took me two and a half years, believe it or not, um, of just like reading books. I probably read every book that I could find that had the word real estate on it. Um, you know, when I was working out at the gym or whatever, I'd be listening to podcasts or watching YouTube videos. Um, and ultimately, I, I feel like, again, I was just focused on a lot of different things and the industry goes very deep with knowledge. So you know, hindsight again is 2020 here. I believe if I would have just focused on exactly what I needed to know, I could have bought the first one much quicker. Um, and, uh, and, and learn nothing extra, you know, just focus on exactly what I needed to know. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm focused on doing now to help people is just, just teaching them exactly what they need to know and nothing extra. So, so for these kids that, you know, you've been helping out 18, 19, who are lucky to honestly even have that, that sort of guidance from, from someone who's been in the game, like what is that streamline of, of, of information that you've been trying to, trying to get to them and, and, um, and 
you know, help them to get to that first property or second property or, or whatever? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I break it down into eight weeks. So there's about eight weeks of like lectures and, and, you know, assignments and whatnot to complete. So they're learning and then they're taking action. They're learning and taking action. Um, if I were to break down those eight weeks, like week one is really around laying the foundations, understanding the why, setting goals, getting super focused, and kind of just the outline of what we're going to be covering in, in the next you know, seven weeks after. Um, then we're also going over analyzing uh, cities. So how to analyze a market, breaking down a market, market uh, and the demographics there to choose the best city that makes the most sense for their investment uh, goals. Then, you know, in week number two, we're going to move on to, to um, being able to find properties. So finding off-market properties to purchase. And there's a lot of different ways to find discounted off-market properties, but we're going to focus on exactly. And again, this is where we've made decisions to kind of cut the fat out because everything's so saturated when it comes to like how to find properties to buy. But we're going to focus on just three main lead generation methods that I currently use in my business um, that they can use as well that it's kind of rare that these are, these are strategies that very few people are using, I find, except for myself and my students. So we'll, we'll use those strategies and that'll help them generate some off-market properties to buy. Um, then we'll go into more like how to walk through the property, how to offer on the property, how to be your own realtor by writing up that agreement to buy the property from the seller. Uh, and then ultimately closing on the property, whether they're closing on it with their own money or someone else's. And that's my favorite point too, because I find a lot of these people that I'm helping right now, they're in school, at university or at college, they have a bunch of debt. There's no way they're getting a mortgage in the next couple of years. Or, or sometimes they don't even have that much money either, right? Saved up. Typically they don't. But we teach them how to actually use what's called joint venturing to partner with other people to buy that, that first property. Um, and, and they can actually use someone else's mortgage and money to buy that property. It, it might sound like ludicrous and, and weird, but trust me when I say it's actually pretty straightforward. And uh, we're doing around 12 to 15 of these a year now. And, uh, and, you know, you can own 50% of the property with none of your own money or mortgage. So it's a, it's a pretty great strategy. Um, then we'll talk how to do the renovation. So how to go into the property that's distressed, how to manage the renovation. I'm not the one to paint and lay floors. Um, at the beginning, my main limiting belief was actually I'm not handy. There's no way that I'm going to be the one to like lay the floors or do the plumbing or the electrical. So you need to be able to find really good, reliable contractors to do the work for you. So we, we teach them that there in a, around week number six. Then we'll go into property management week number seven, which is re-rentals, which is the maintenance request. So finding good tenants, selecting them. Um, and then we do administration and bookkeeping too, because I, I find the one downfall of um, investors is that they forget that the CRA will look at these properties as businesses. So they need to be run like one when it comes to the bookkeeping um, and the administration. So yeah, it's really like a start to finish. Like we, we don't stop working with the students until they buy that first property. So this is really like a full service, step-by-step kind of game plan on owning, managing, running, scaling a real estate business. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Now, did you like, how, how, how long were you in the game before you decided to like start doing this type of coaching or mentorship for, for students? Yeah, I, I've ran businesses since I was 18, ran a home maintenance company and whatnot, scaled that. Um, we, we were doing six figures a year and it was just students as well at university. And then we, we started to coach other franchises and whatnot and help other, other companies that were doing the same thing. Um, that's led me into real estate, but so far it's been over, over four years right now 
that we've been really active in doing joint ventures and um, growing the real estate uh, business. Uh, and the coaching is relatively new, but within the last two years, we've been we've been helping a good amount of people through the coaching here. Why 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 coach? If you don't mind me asking. Um, honestly, and I don't want this to sound arrogant or uh, or or anything of that nature, but like there comes a point where like the money, like you know, these assets generate enough that you're fine. And I'm not really driven by money. I'm not like oh, I want to go make an extra you know this much money this week. Um, it really then comes down to like what checks all the other boxes that you have that makes you happy, makes you fulfilled. And I don't jump out of bed in the morning, excited to buy bricks and mortar and drywall and paint. That's not something that I'm inspired to do or, or passionate about, but I am when it comes to like going through the experience again of buying that first property. And, and that's actually a little selfish of me too, because that's really why I want to help people to buy that first one. Um, for me, it's like, of course I get a lot of satisfaction through helping someone period. Um, and I also, you get to really experience buying my first property again, which is the best one, by the way, through the, the living vicariously through these students, um, and doing something for the first time. Like there's nothing better. Like that's the ecstasy feeling that someone gets. That's why people travel, right. Is to go around and experience things for the first time. And, uh, and it's a lot of fun. So, um, that's why I do it. Certainly. Interesting. Now, I mean, you sounded like you, you were, you were a hustler from, from pretty, pretty young age, like where does, where does this drive come from? Like, what, what was, what was the, the big goal for you? You know, I don't know if, if I've ever had a goal. Um, yeah, I started off running track and field. And I think that was like the pivoting point for me. I was like 16 or 17. And in my very small town where I grew up in, in rural Nova Scotia, I was lucky enough to have a track coach um, in my township that was actually the track coach on team Canada. So, you know, it was a really cool experience to work with her. And, and I, I was, I, you know, she was my coach for, for the better half of like five years. And so she pushed me and like, I, I learned the importance of like de delayed gratification when it came to track and field, because you train all year round and you run super, super hard. And I was like a mid distance runner. So it was like a grueling agony run. Like it was, it was not easy at all. And, uh, and, and yeah, you work all year round for like a two minute race, you know, but, but once you win or once you do super well and you, and you, you PB your personal best, it's like your record there. Um, there's no better feeling. Like it was so, so bizarre looking back to that you train for 11 or 12 months of the year to just shave off two seconds on your time. Um, and, and so I really learned about work ethic there and just getting dialed in and focused. And that's certainly carried on through my, kind of later teenage years and, and 20s and and so then like how did that then translate into into you know this kind of entrepreneurial um you know bent that you, that you seem to have I mean you said you started a home maintenance company when you're you know late teens early 20s and you know now you're dibble dabbling into real estate scale scaling this up to the point where now you're doing coaching um, like where, like, where did that, where did that kind of, uh, entrepreneurial drive come from? Cause I mean, most people are very comfortable just, you know, you, you, you go the, you go the, you go the route, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, you go to school, you, you get a skill that, you know, will pay, you get a job, you work your nine to five and, you know, get to enjoy your weekends. But I mean, this, that's not really what entrepreneurship is, you know, this is, it's a lot yeah. of different lifestyle. Yeah, I think, yeah, we're getting deep here. This is great. Um, 
I think if I had to look back at the moment in time where I shifted and I stopped being an employee or working the nine to five, like you said, um, I, first year university, I, you know, lots of debt. I, I partied a little bit, probably too much. I had a lot of debt in my first year and I, I had to make good money. So I, I went home and I worked at a tire factory. That was like the best paying job you could get in my town and making like 17 or 18 an hour. So I think I probably cleared four grand, maybe five that summer and thought I thought it, that was, that was it. That was the pinnacle. And, and realized I barely even made a dent into like what I had for, for expenses or costs. Um, and, and you know, that's the average salary too. I think the average student makes, you know, between the age of 18 to 22, like five grand or $5,500 over the course of the year. So it's not very much money. And then I started to learn about the results-based economy and how you can kind of become rewarded based on your results, not based on what someone else dictates your worth per hour. And that was just like this complete paradigm shift for me where I, beforehand I was like, yeah, I want to work a nine to five. Like, that's just what you do. That's what everyone does. And, and I'm like, no, like that just doesn't work. Like I was working at the factory, like a little robot did not enjoy it at all. And, and I'm like, why don't I just work super, super hard for even 10 years to just achieve some type of freedom, whatever that would be freedom of time, freedom of money. And, and maybe I could make like whole, like $30 an hour and value my time at $30 an hour. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, and, and slowly I've kind of done that where I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing any tasks under what I believe I'm worth per hour and I've leveraged the rest. So like now my food's leveraged and so my cleaning and, and pretty much everything except for this sort of thing where I'm talking to people and, and really kind of, you know, embracing my strong suit. But, you know, I, I think that was the shift was, was back then. I just started thinking about the results based economy and where I wanted to be, um, dictating how much I'm worth, you know, not having someone else dictate how much I'm worth. What, what, what was your introduction to the results-based economy? Was it, or was, was, Actually, it, was, it, was it just frustration of like where you were at or like, how did like. Yeah. An organization. So um, the organization's name is student works. So student works, like they have a painting division and a window cleaning division. So, at, you know, at the age of 18, I'd actually learned about um, who they were. And, and I was lucky enough to be selected to run one of their businesses. That was a whole maintenance company. And, uh, and it was amazing. It was like this whole program designed to really help me learn how to be an entrepreneur or how to be um, self-employed at least, right? So yeah, that, that, that was the organization that actually introduced me to a lot of this. Oh, I see. I see. It's, it's, I, I, and I think it really only takes like one of those instances to just really like open up your mind to, you know, leverage and, uh, you know, yeah, just just you're right. It is it is a paradigm shift, um, because I mean, yeah, even 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 myself, like I started a business pretty pretty young. Um, I got I got introduced to the the idea of the results based economy through mentorship, um, which is why I was kind of picking your picking your brain on on how it came to you, um, and uh, yeah, you realize that. Uh, I mean, if 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 your, your income is, is dictated based on the amount of time that you put in and your time is, is a fixed number and it's a limit, it's in limited quantity, then, you know, there's only so much you can do. Um, but I find it interesting that you also never mentioned that this was, this wasn't about like making millions and, you know, living some high flying life. Like 
it really, <laughs> it really is just a more efficient way of, of going about what you wanted to do. Yeah. No, definitely not about the materials at all. Um, experiences are pretty cool. So I want to save up for experiences and travel. And But uh, I still drive like a, a Jeep Liberty. It, it, you know, as soon as like something goes wrong with it, that's over $1,000. I think it's easy to say it's wrote off. It's not even worth that. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't even have like an AC. I have like this AC I bought from Amazon, two little fans that sit on the dash. Like, you know, to save the money to fix the AC, it's like $40 for these fans. So <laughs> I, I live a pretty frugal lifestyle, it's safe to say. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there will come a point where like I don't and I, I kind of splurge myself a bit more, but you know, I'm still fine to kind of delay the gratification for now and, um, you know, live a little rougher. Yeah. But uh, you know, once I have dependence in a family, I believe that that's where things will shift a bit more in the other direction. That's fair. That's fair. Now, um, you know, you, you know, you talked about that analysis it was, I guess you could say it's some analysis paralysis of, you know, going through all this material, um, reading about this, that, and the third, um, when it comes to getting into real estate. Now, what was it that, you know, let you take that, make the jump, you know, and, and like moving from just thinking about it. Cause I know a lot of people, um, who are kind of in that state, you know, it's like, you're, you're reading, you're learning, um, about what's going on you're hearing different markets different investment strategies but it's like just making that jump seems to be the most difficult thing like what was it that took you over the edge um, to getting into your first property that's a really good question and I know a lot of this is psychological anyway when it comes down to like the mindset and someone's confidence in them in themselves and trust in themselves and, and, and in their competence as well. I think those are the two main, those are the two main C words that you need to really focus on to buy that first one is, is both your confidence and your competence. So I have a very low risk tolerance. So just putting that out there, I don't like just pull the trigger on something and say, Oh, you know, I don't know anything. I'm just going to go and do this. Um, I, I need to like take my time. And like, again, it took me like two, two and a half years of just full immersion in a space of learning it. And Again, I, I don't believe it should have taken that long. I just took that long because I was all over the place. And that's why I put together a program to hopefully shorten it for others. But um, yeah, for me, like I just did all this learning, all this education. And there came a point where I was just frustrated. I was frustrated that I was in paralysis analysis. I was stuck. I didn't buy any properties. Um, I was kind of calling myself this real estate investor. But ultimately, like I was a phony. I didn't even buy a property. I didn't own anything. So so there came a point where it was just enough's enough. And I just bought something and it was actually a pretty good purchase. Like I still have it in the portfolio today. Um, but you know, again, I probably could have bought it much quicker, but I didn't, I, I do though, like have a good amount of confidence in myself and my ability. And, and I think that's just come from like the different on, on entrepreneurial ventures that I've taken in the past and just kind of slowly building up that confidence in myself. And now it'll be the point where I'll, I'll buy a property and then I have to figure out how to buy it after. Like I'll, you know, I'll make an offer. I'll have a property locked up and I'm like, yeah. So now we have to figure out who, like where I'm getting this money from and how we're going to buy it. Um, so I'll put myself really through the ringer like that, or I'll buy a property that has problems that I've never solved before. But I, I have a good amount of confidence in my ability to go and solve these problems. Um, so, so I think slowly your tolerance builds up and you're able to take on larger and larger problems. Uh, not really knowing what will happen on the other side. So that's the confidence piece for sure. And then the confidence is just purely your skill set. You know, of course, your experience as well. 
I always tell my students, like, get on the court as soon as you can. Um, stop being in the stands, like watching people play the game and just get on the court and start start trying to dribble the ball and, and play play at the best that you can. Um, and uh, and I think that comes from just having a foot in the door. Like for me, I, I started working with, with a gentleman named Corey and he actually owned a real estate investing portfolio in Southwestern Ontario. So, you know, he was he had like a hundred units and was super active in, in the space. So I, I worked under him for the better half of a year and a half and learned how to do the acquisitions for finding properties, locking them up, doing renovations, doing all the property management for, you know, a hundred units. And so that was my like experience. And, you know, I, I got paid decently while I was able to live comfortably, but not enough where I'm like, oh, like this is my dream job. So I, I didn't do it forever, but I knew that, hey, this is my experience to at least learn what I need to learn and, uh, and get that confidence as well, right? in the space. So I think it's really a mixture of both. And, and so I encourage everyone, you know, go in and work on your confidence piece for sure. It's personal development, or if it's just taking on larger problems that make you a little bit uncomfortable and solving those problems. And then for sure, the confidence as well, and like going through and actually having the experience um, in real estate investing at whatever degree you can. Um, if it's reaching out, even working pro bono, working for free for a few months uh, with another investor, then, you know, you have to do what you have to do get that confidence well what were some of the people around you or your team I guess you could say that uh you think uh or have found to be very integral to you know getting into the game and also you know continuing to scale and thrive in the business yeah good question um it's difficult to like zero in on like just a few individuals like there's been definitely a, a large variety of uh of individuals that I know that have given me different insights or different angles that I could approach this from. Um, you know, I, I think I've already mentioned Corey. So, so Corey was definitely kind of like the first person that kind of introduced me to a lot of these topics and, and showed me the, the ways in which I could invest and how I could approach everything. Um, and then I, I've definitely since hired other mentors and I paid a good amount of money to work with people that are kind of helping me learn to build subdivisions. Cause that's my goal here is to build subdivisions that are environmentally friendly. Um, so I'm working with other mentors there too. And, you know, their skill sets are completely different um, in the new build space. And that's teaching me renovations, like to, to be extremely easy. Cause when you're learning how to build a property, that's like a hundred times more difficult than how to go and paint a property, you know, or, or lay flooring. So it makes renovations much easier. So I think just always kind of learning one step ahead. Like if you're in residential multifamilies, like two, three, four unit buildings, go learn a bit about like how to, buy a $20 million building, you know, that has a hundred units. Go try to learn about that. Um, not that you're going to do it, but just attempt and pretend as if you were going to. And, and that will really stretch your growth too. So that's kind of, I, I think something I've done is I've gone and I've, 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 I've went after mentors that are 10 or 50 steps ahead of me. And, uh, and you know, won't, won't even be on my horizon in the next five or 10 years, but I've, I've worked under them to at least try to gain that knowledge. Um, and, and then that, that kind of rises the tide all across, right? Are there other like key individuals that people should have, um, when trying to get into the game, like, and, and like, key, I would say professionals of, or experts of some sort, like, and, and, and what, what are they? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, I have quite a few conversations every week with people that are starting off in their beginning and, and some of them are a bit more confident than they should be. Um, to be honest, or, or at least they feel more confident than they, than they really should be. 
based on the questions I'm asking and what they know. Nothing against them. It's just, I think they're surrounded around probably the wrong types of people. Um, they're surrounded around people that may have bought in a pre-construction, you know, which is the simplest thing that you could do. You just kind of put money in and, and you don't do anything. But, but, you know, these are people that have read a few blog posts. They might've listened to one podcast or something or read one book. And, and they're naturally kind of this person that they feel way more confident than they probably should be. And ignorance is blessed at a certain stage where you don't know what you don't know. And, and, and I think, yeah, that's something to be very, very cautious around as a beginner mm. is, is speaking with people that are more confident than they should be. Um, so, so make sure that you're working or at least mentoring under someone that has a portfolio. Like they have five, 10 properties, 15 properties. And, and their systems work at scale too. Because sometimes these in, imperfections or you call it inefficiencies are not going to be noticed at one property or at two, you know, but, but as you, as you scale though, you know, the, these systems break and they crack. So you need to learn systems that work of course for your first one, but they also work at your 10th or at your 50th. So you get the first property um, and uh, you, since I'm sure, you know, purchased dozens uh, more since, um, but what's, what's been your main strategy in growing your portfolio? Yeah, so it, it's really a two-pronged approach. So the financing strategy has been partnering with people. So I'll partner with others that have money and they have a mortgage. Uh, and then I'll do all the heavy kind of lifting. I'll do the day-to-day -day active work. So that's kind of the more financing strategy. When it comes to the actual investment strategy, I look at, um, I, and I use the Burr strategy, uh, along with Airbnb a bit as well, as kind of an alternative for, for cash flow. But um, the Burr strategy, and, and it's an acronym, so it's B-R-R-R-R, so there's four R's. Um, it's buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and repeat. Um, and, and ultimately what you're gonna be doing there is you're gonna buy something cheap, you're gonna do the renovation as inexpensive as you can, you're gonna be able to increase Increase rents though, because now that the unit is worth more, so rents are going to be increased. And then because of that, the bank will see properties more valuable and they're going to say, okay, great. Well, we can actually give you a refinance now for the property quick, you know, within a year or two. So you're going to take that money out that in a refinance check that you had spent for the down payment and the renovation cost. So now you actually own this property for none of your own money still invested in it or none of your partner's money still invested in it. And you can take that money and you can actually recycle it into the next one. And so that's the repeat part. And if you actually recycle it into another property before it hits like your own bank account. So there, there's the path there that you can show the CRA that it went into the next property. Um, you don't get tax capital gains, which is a huge benefit because if you can refinance it hundred thousand dollars, you're not getting taxed at 30% on that hundred grand. You're not getting taxed really at all if, as long as you put it into the next property. So that's the strategy that we use. So purchase the property, renovate it, increase the rents, and then by improving that property, you've increased the value of that property. Um, and, and the bank will then give, you can then pull out all the cash that you've been in to, to put the down payment. It still blows my mind that the banks will do this, but, um, and that's why a lot of investors now are, are using this strategy and they have been for a long time. The Burr acronym actually just came up, came up with David Green He's from the bigger pockets um, in the last couple of years, but really intelligent investors have been using this strategy for decades, like a long, long time before it ever was even known as the Burr strategy. They didn't even have a name for it. They just said, well, you buy it cheap, 
you, you, you do the renovation thing and then you're going to increase rents and then you can put money quick. But now we have a name for it too. So it's more well-known than ever before, but this is what investors have been doing for a long, long time. Um, yeah. So, so it, you know, it, it kind of can seem like confusing, you know, for me, it took a little while for sure to wrap my head around how that work. Why do the banks give a larger, like, why do they give you that check? Just think of it this way. Like if you had a mortgage of 300,000, um, okay. So you had a mortgage at 300,000 for your first mortgage. And then naturally the property is worth more money. The bank will give you a new mortgage for 80% of that new number. So say you had one for, you know, mortgage for 300,000, but now the property is worth like 800,000 and the bank will give you a mortgage for 80% of 800,000. So if they were to give you a mortgage for that, it's like, well, now your mortgage is at 640 before it was at, at 300. Well, they'll, they'll give you the, that break, the difference there between the first mortgage and the second one. So they'll give you that $340,000 check um, for the difference there between your first mortgage and your new one. And, but because you've already renovated it and been able to increase the rents, um, even when that mortgage amount increases, you'll still be able to service that mortgage cost. Um, say that once more. Uh, actually, I didn't grab that. If you if you were to okay, so let's say you know your your original mortgage was three hundred thousand and the pro and the property right. was worth five fifty, right? But now you've done renovations and the property's worth eight hundred. Um, the bank will give you eighty percent of that. As as as, a, as the bank will always give you 80% of the appraised value of the property. Okay. So if that mortgage amount increases though, doesn't your, your, your monthly service mortgage servicing costs increase as well, right? Yes. Yes. But, so it's very important that when you buy the property initially, that the cash flow of that property is like over what we call 10% cash and cash ROI. They're getting too detailed here. Like the cash flow needs to be pretty significant. Like it has to be good enough so that when you do increase the mortgage that you have and, and therefore the costs or the expenses of the property increase as well, but there's still enough cash flow there to keep the property afloat because naturally, yes, when you do refinance and pull out the money there and increase the size of the mortgage, you're going to have less cash flow and you never want to be in the position where your property is negatively cash flowing. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think that, yeah. So first thing you want to do is what you're saying is the first thing you want to do is you want to make sure that it already has a healthy cash flow. Um, but on top of that, um, I also figured that once you do the renovations and you increase the rents, that'll also, you know, give you a bit more of a buffer and a spread to make sure that you can continue to cash flow even after the, uh, the mortgage has been refinanced, right? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Now, why, 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 why get into the renovations game? Um, like what, what's, what, what was the, the whole idea for you? Like, why not just buy and hold or continue to, you know, scale up your properties that way? Yeah. Well, keep in mind, like, I'm not, I'm not painting walls and I'm not laying flooring. So it's like naturally renovations, um, are, are not that much to do. Like, it, you know, you just have to factor it in in your expenses. So as long as you have a really good team or you at least, you know, you've been able to build up that power team of contractors that can do the work for you. It's really not that overly complicated, but you need to certainly like have good scripts to use to find these contractors and have checklists and, and contracts to use with them. So once you have all these those systems in place for 
being able to have a really good management team or, or renovation management team, um, it can just run itself, right? So we'll have like two, three or four projects going on at any point in time all across Ontario here. And we have just people in place to do those renovations. And then I'm just kind of checking in once a day or once every couple of days to make sure things are on track. So um, I, I think the reason why I decided to go with the renovation um, piece, like not, and not to skip that in the birth strategy, because it's super rudimentary to that refinance check it is for that reason though. I wanted to have that refinance check. And the only way to do that is to increase the value of the property. So we call it forced depreciation. So naturally the market will give you maybe, you know, two, three, 4% appreciation a year um, because inflation goes up to point whatever percent. So naturally property values also go up 2% or so. Um, you know, if, if you've been paying attention to the market anywhere in the world in the last couple of, or in Canada, at least in the last year or two, we've seen like 20% in some markets. So it's just kind of bonkers, but um, you can also naturally control the appreciation and how much the property is worth through the renovation. And I like that control. That's what I really enjoy about my investment strategy here in real estate investing compared to like maybe stocks or something where I don't have as much control. I, I can really dictate how this asset's appraised, how much it's worth, who the tenants are, how much they're paying in rent. So I have a lot more control with these levers here in real estate investing than I would if I bought like Apple's stock because I couldn't walk into the CEO's office and say, hey, can you change the way that you're making these iPhones <laughs> or, or, or your marketing strategy? I couldn't do any of that with, with a stock, but I, I can certainly control my asset here in real estate. And, and a piece of that control is my renovation so I can do to it. As, as you've decided to scale your business now, uh, as far as real estate investing, birth strategies, et cetera, like how, has your focus been more so on uh, through like focusing on a specific property type or focusing on a specific area um, that you wanted to focus in on? Um, yeah, a bit of both. Yeah. And, and kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier around focus, I think this is where a lot of people kind of le get left astray is they're focused on 10 different markets and use and buying a bunch of different properties. Um, I think you really have to, at the beginning, at least start as narrowed in as you can on like one city, even within one quadrant of that city of interest. And, and you know, to be able to make that decision, you have to be able to analyze proper cities properly. But once you learn how to analyze them and which demographics to kind of pick out to analyze that city, then you can pick one city and you can just focus on understanding all of the market characteristics of that city. So, you know, what the prices are trading for, you know, duplexes are going for this much in this area, triplexes are going for this much, rents are this much in this area. Cause there's a lot to understand and, and to study for that one city. So if you're trying to study five different cities at the same time, good luck. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where a lot of people get, um, unfocused, right? They, they lose this, this, um, um, they, they lose the traction to like keep progressing. Cause they're like, this is way too much and it's too overwhelming. Well, it's because they're not, they're not focused enough on one certain city. So, so that, that, that's the kind of the market piece. And then in terms of the property, you know, again, I recommend you kind of pick a, at least an asset class um, when it comes to the type of property, a single family properties, we don't buy unless it's an Airbnb, but you know, at the beginning, I, I think, single family properties, if you're not doing an Airbnb or maybe student housing, they tend to be overpriced for a buy and hold because now you're not just buying against investors. Like the buyer's pool is huge. Like you're buying also against families that want to have their own home to live in, like for them, their kids, their dog, they want their own self-contained property. Um, 
So, you know, they're naturally willing to pay a larger premium to have this own property by itself. So the, the price per unit, like the price for that one unit, because a single family is one unit, is extremely high. So you're overpaying for sure. Um, so I actually recommend a, a perfect first investment for an income property is like a two, three or four unit property. Because once you go above four units, um, so that's in the five units or more, so a fiveplex or more, you're into the commercial multifamily space and you have to put down 25 to even sometimes 35 or 40% for your down payment. And the regulations are tighter, it's more strict. It's just a way more complicated environment to learn in than like the two to four unit space where you could put down maybe five or 10, five or 10%, um, sometimes 20% at, at the most. But um, yeah, so that's what I, I focused on at the beginning was duplexes, triplexes and fourplexes, the two to four units um, in one city being London, Ontario. Well Aside from London, are there any other cities in uh, Southern Ontario that you're liking right now? Yeah, we, we expanded into uh, Cernia as well. And then St. Thomas, uh, along with uh, uh, kind of, um, I, I guess, newly, we're, we're like focused on Chatham. And, and I do like Chatham. There's a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, great stuff going on in Chatham. Um, Cernia as well, actually. Cernia, Cernia was ranked... Uh, in first position in, uh, in, in a new article here by Zolo. So Zolo, if you look up the Zolo, our article on the, the most affordable uh, cities in, in Ontario, um, Cerny was actually ranked as the top middle kind of tier city. So middle, middle size city for, for the population size. So I, yeah, I think Sarnia has a lot going for it right now too. And um, yeah, so kind of rural areas for sure in Southwestern Ontario, staying away from like the mega cities like Windsor and London right now, but they just tend to be a bit more, bit more expensive. True. Uh, wh why do you think, why do you think it's a, it's a good time to get in the game right now? Uh, what's the saying? And I hate this cliche, but it, 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 it's so true. I can't not say it. It's like, uh, it, when's a good time to like invest? And it's like yesterday, you know, um, it's always a good time is, is kind of the truth. Because, you know, hey, if, if you're if you're looking at flipping a property or you're looking at more of a short short term strategy where it's going to be a few months, if the market does come down, you could be left high and dry if you don't have a really solid exit plan. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't encourage someone if they're just starting out to like start off and flipping um, if they don't have a solid exit plan, because you can easily lose a lot of money right now. So you have to be buying very low um, to at least kind of pad yourself for that risk. But if you're looking to buy for five or 10 years, like all of my properties that I buy, uh, we make sure that we have a 10 year plan. It's like, this is where the property will be in 10 years. Um, and we have a very minimum uh, like term for the property, which is five years. Like the, the shortest time would ever be five years. And actually if we were to exit or if our partners were to exit within five years or less, there, there's, a, there's a penalty or a fee that we have to pay or, or owe to one another uh, for that. So we, we kind of lock ourselves in for a minimum five years. And on average, the market does perform quite well over a five-year period. It might come down for a year or two or maybe three, but over five years, it really does plateau and it will come back up. So, you know, if, if you're in the buy and hold strategy, it's always a great time. That, that's the asterisk there. But if you're in any type of other strategy, like maybe flipping or whatnot, um, you have to be very cautious, especially right now with the market increasing the way that it is. Um, but but that's, that's why I believe it's always a great time because... Uh, yeah, if you can get in, then and, and you're going to wait five to ten years, uh, you're almost guaranteed to have a really great ROI by the end of that decade. 
prices have been increasing like crazy. We are surely we're due for a market crash though, right? I'm, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, there are certain mentors that I have that my ears will kind of perk up a bit more than when other people speak about the topic because um, they've been through two, three market cycles. You know, they've been investing for 30, 40, 50 years, some of them. Um, so they're extremely seasoned, as you can imagine. And they've been through these cycles. They understand the indicators that kind of uh, pop up to them when they're like, yep, no, this happened three times, you know, in the last 30 years. I know that we're due. And, and I'm not going to disclose much, but yeah, I, I would imagine that things would come down here in the next year to two years. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to see like a massive bubble uh, where something's going to pop and we're going to be down 20%, but I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a fortune teller, um, but we could be five, 10% quite easily. I would say in the next year to two years, nothing that scares people like crazy. Um, I, I do believe that a lot of people right now that are jumping on this bandwagon and thinking there's no way you can lose money in real estate are the ones that will lose some significant money because they're overpaying for the properties that they're buying. And they have these rose colored glasses on thinking, well, they're only thinking in terms of appreciation, but they've never heard of the word depreciation because they've never been through that part of the cycle. Because mm -hmm. if they have a million dollar property, they're like, well, geez, I'm going to make 200 grand this year if it appreciates another 20%. But they forget that the market could come down 20% and therefore they lose 200,000. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also important um, to look at too, especially right now in, in this kind of stage in our cycle. What what do you what have you been doing uh, within your own investing strategy to kind of hedge against such a risk? Really great question. Um, being cautious with our purchase price, so buying 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 as low as we can. Um, you know, making sure that even if the market does come down twenty percent, that we're still able to sell the property for what we bought it for um, to at least break even, right? Um, making sure that the cash flow is like above and beyond what it used to be. So the cash flow has to be high enough that if interest rates do go up and we're in a variable, um, variable mortgage, that we can still, again, kind of cash flow positive. Because if you're barely breaking neutral right now in your cash flow in the property, and you bought the property at 1.45%, like we have this year on some of the properties, and, and interest rates increase to three or four or even 5%, you're, you're, you know, you could be negatively cash flowing hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars a month because of that increase in, in interest, right? So it's important to make sure that number one, the cash flow is, is a, a, of the surplus and actually calculating in maybe a 4% interest rate on the property to make sure, again, distress test it in, in your analyzing to make sure, again, you can kind of cash flow enough. Um, and then the other piece here for sure is just buying, buying low. So you have to have a really great strategy to buy off-market properties been telling a lot of investors, hey, it's just, it's really a miserable time to buy anything on the market as an investor. Um, it's an excellent time to buy, sell your property on the market for sure though. And then, you know, it's always a great time to buy off market properties if you, if you know what you're doing and if you're able to find them. Have you always gone for the off market strategy? I have. Yeah. It's always been a main focus. And once in a while, we'll, we'll find some hidden gems on, on the, you know, on MLS, on the realtor.ca website. But um, typically, we're always like focused on buying off market. Yeah, it seems like uh, off market has definitely become a lot more attractive with uh, MLS prices gone crazy. So I, I, I've definitely uh, been been looking at it as well. And yeah, you see the real estate mastermind groups on Facebook and stuff going crazy with all the uh, yeah. off 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 market uh, properties. Um, but that, that that's definitely a gem. 
uh, as far as like sourcing properties to purchase. Um, it is a lot less competitive, I noticed. Um, and whereas uh, with MLS, um, sellers will, you know, create bidding wars and do all of that. I know a lot of off-market guys who will just do first come first serve. Um, and if, if they get the, if they get the deal that they're asking for, they're, they're willing to make it happen. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, Riley, thank you very much, man. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, uh, we, we got to do this again sometime. Yeah, no, definitely. I've had a blast and appreciate, uh, appreciate the conversation. Yeah. All right.